At Veritas, we talk a lot about transporting your donor to the scene so that the need becomes real to them and they're inspired to help achieve your mission. At the same time, we want to take care that you're not promoting a savior mentality when you're sharing emotional and personal stories from the community you serve. This savior mentality, or white saviorism, shows up in some donors and organizations who take a very sanctimonious view of their role to save people. And this thinking is a huge disservice to the communities they serve. So how do you talk about the need without suggesting a savior mentality? This is the topic of today's episode, and we're inviting a special guest, Alaguma Young, to help us understand how we can address white saviorism in the nonprofit space. Welcome to the Nothing But Major Gifts podcast from Veritas Group, featuring Richard Perry and Jeff Schreifels. Twice a month, we bring you the latest and best thinking about major gift fundraising, so you can develop authentic relationships with your major donors. Here are your hosts, Richard and Jeff. Welcome to the podcast today. I'm Jeff Schreifels, and I've invited Karen Kendrick, our Senior Director of Learning, to co-host a very special episode with me today. And if you've been following Veritas Group for a while, then you know how important we think talking about the need is. That's because you have to clearly communicate the problem you're working to solve to your donors. And if you only share the solution, the donor won't have the opportunity to be a part of addressing the need and won't feel like they're making a difference. Sharing the need can be done in partnership with those we serve so that the telling of their story is healing and empowering. But many times it isn't done that way. And we can come from a savior mentality, which is demeaning and causes harm. In our efforts to raise funds to help our community, we inadvertently hurt those we want to support. So to help us understand what this is and how it impacts our fundraising efforts and how to address it, We've asked Alaguma Young to join us as our special guest. So welcome to both of you. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be here. Alaguma, we're just thrilled to have this conversation with you. I am so excited to be here. This is so fun. And I'm so excited that we get to have this conversation. So Alaguma, I know we've had the opportunity to get to know you over the last couple of years, but I'd love for you to share more about yourself and your work with our guests. Absolutely. So as the first thing, I love letting people know how to say my name. It's Ali Guma. And the way that I help people to pronounce it correctly is think of Muhammad Ali then Guma. So Ali Guma. Yeah. I am a first generation Ugandan American who grew up in the Midwest, went to college in the Northeast. I attended Tufts University for my undergrad and the Miller College of Business for my MBA in finance. But the things that are most dear to me that really make me who I am and really drive my work 
are the fact that I am a mompreneur. I have three amazing kids and I started my company, The Super Fundraiser and a company, Ali Guma Speaks, because I saw that in my almost 20 years of fundraising, that there was a lack of opportunity for people to get access to information on how to fundraise through an equity lens. Mm -hmm. And so my work has been dedicated to creating more equity in the world through leadership support and really coaching organizations in how to do equity-led fundraising that empowers communities and actually drives change and raises lots of money. In my career, I've raised over $200 million for nonprofits nationally and internationally. And through that work, I've seen pretty much everything. And so <laughs> that's what I use in my work, in my practice as a consultant, in my work as an advocate in the world as a human, and also as a mom every day to make sure that my kids are living in a more equitable world and that they themselves feel like they can be instruments of change. And so that's what I love to do is inspire people to figure out how they can be a part of making change. Awesome. And thank you so much for the Ali, Muhammad Ali reference. I've been calling you Ali Guma. <laughs> All this time. So thank you, Ali Guma. <laughs> that really helps me to say that more correctly. So, so excited to have this conversation with you today. And I know that you're going to come with a lot of how-tos and solutions, and I really appreciate that. So, but to get started, let's define, you know, what does it mean by the savior mentality or what we also hear white saviorism? What are we talking about here? Yes, great question. So when we're talking about a savior mentality, what that means is when you see something is wrong and you say, hey, look, I have resources. I can come in and save the day. I can make it happen. Right. And a great example of that to make it kind of real, if you will, imagine um, for a moment that you are <laughs> out somewhere and you have a bunch of items in your hand and it starts to rain. And in that moment, the one thing you need most is an umbrella. And someone walks by you, bumps into you, you knock everything down, and then they pick it up and move it into a building for you. And they're so happy because they mm -hmm. saved the day. Mm -hmm. However, the thing that you needed was to get the items into your vehicle because you'd already traveled quite a distance to get there. Mm -hmm. The savior mentality is when you don't ask any questions. You don't make any inquiries. You don't assess the situation by asking the person who appears to be in need, especially if that person is asked for help. Mm -hmm. When someone screams for help, the first thing that you always do is say, okay, what's going on? How can I help? There's a show that's on TV right now. I love it. It's um, New Amsterdam. And I'm not going to do a commercial for it, <laughs> but because uh, I can't even think of what channel it's on, but 
the lead character is a doctor who's a chief of a hospital and he's in charge of this major community hospital. And his thing is, whenever someone comes to me, his first question is, how can I help? White saviorism, any type of saviorism, is when you come into a situation, a community, an individual's life, and you say, I'm going to help you with all the things that I have and all the resources I have, and you don't ask any questions and you don't engage that person or community in the creation of a solution. Yes, I love that. So why do you, I mean, what, why are we even asking this question? What is the actual problem here? Cool. yes. So why are we asking this question? Since the summer of 2020, organizations globally have been having this conversation of, hey, racism exists, it's real. There are real challenges impacting communities and it starts with racism most often, but it's across all sorts of isms that exist in our society. Sexism, um, ageism, ableism, Mm -hmm. across every ism, there are communities that are challenged and there's organizations and individuals who want and have been supporting and offering services, but also not seeing change. So we've been pouring millions and billions, honestly, of dollars into various causes and not really seeing transformation in communities. And as we sat back in 2020 and started asking questions around race, about what's going wrong, for the first time, the microphone was turned on for those communities. And those communities were continuing to say the same message that's been said for generations, but it was the first time that there was actually a platform. And that platform message was consistently, you're not listening, you're not hearing, and you're not actually helping. And as organizations have been hearing that repeatedly from their staff, from the communities they serve, and from their leadership in various ways, it's causing a reckoning, if you will. But the challenge with any revelation in a society that, hey, we're doing it wrong, is that there's a lot of confusion about what to do next. And so the last two years, what I've seen is that people have been having the conversation, but have no idea what to do about it. And the reason is, is because when people think about fundraising and when they talk about major gift fundraising in particular, Mm -hmm. and it's almost like there's this dichotomy between major gift fundraising and annual giving appeals. And there's the same belief that says the only way people are going to give is if you pull on hearts and minds. Right. And if you change minds and you convince their hearts, their hearts will lead them to invest in a deep way. I believe that there's only an element of that that is true. And the reason that I believe that is because I honestly believe that we are all (laughs) intrinsically self 
centered. We are focused yeah. on our own legacies, our own desires, and our own passions. And because of that, yes, we are led by our hearts and minds, but it's not necessarily the heart and mind of the organization that leads us to make transformational gifts mm -hmm. and investments. It's our own hearts and minds for the causes that we care deeply about. Right. And what you win when, as a fundraiser is when you're able to connect the dots between your organization's mission and that individual's mission. Yeah. And when you connect those dots, that's when you win. That's when you win big. And what happens is that when people hear those stories of the $100 million investment and they did it because their heart was for children who had overcome dyslexia. Right. No, it wasn't just that. There was something that inspired them to look at that topic, to look at that concern. And that something, that origin story, if you will, mm -hmm. is always either a personal experience, i.e. they themselves experienced it or someone close to them experienced it, or a learned experience. And that's the place in that learned experience place is when things tend to fall apart. When we're talking about this idea of how do we convert our knowledge of a learned experience mm -hmm. in a way that inspires giving and gets people excited about an issue. Yeah. So there's so much to unpack here, Alaguma. I just yeah. love all that you just shared. I want to run back just for a second to your story at the beginning where the person's in the rain, right? Mm -hmm. So I think about, so this saviorism in my mind, what I'm thinking about is I might work with an organization, let's say working with folks in poverty. I come in with what I think are the solutions. I'm doing all these things. We're not seeing true change in that community. And then most likely I'm blaming the folks we're serving for not changing. And in the meantime, I've never even asked them to be a part of the solution that actually would people who are actually experiencing it to be a part of that solution. So that's so fascinating. And here I have just moved their stuff into the building and not really taken it down the road. I love that analogy. That really helps because I know I know there's this reactive. I'm going to bring what I can. I have my resources and judgments right about the gifts and talents and abilities of folks that I'm serving or working with. So that's a really helpful way to break that down and make that more real. I really appreciate that analogy. And what you're asking is an excellent question. And I want to kind of take that like a step further of there's another question behind the question that I just heard Karen, which was awesome because the first question and the first place where things break down is in the assessment of the problem. Mm -hmm. And so when we start talking about how we apply an equity lens to our work, it starts with how we assess a problem. Like what questions do we even start with asking? For me as a black woman, I'm naturally and especially as a first generation Black woman who grew up in a household with a parent who did not speak English as her first language. However, she was a university professor and so had an excellent command, obviously, of the English language. 
that said, it gave me from a very early age, a consciousness about the fact that being in America doesn't mean that you speak English fluently. Mm-hmm. That fluent, that understanding and that perspective makes me significantly more cognizant of language divergence in an audience. So while yes, I have lived in the South for years, I have, I know I sound country, especially the more relaxed I am, the more excited I get, the faster I talk. And so I have to make a conscious effort to make sure that I'm checking for understanding, that I'm not leaving long chunks of information. That's a perspective that I have from my personal experience that allows me to operate in my public speaking through an equity lens. What does that mean when we're talking about assessing a need or a problem? That means starting with what I like to call it is the who cares tree. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And Mm -hmm. some people, they, and I tell them, you know, look, it's going to hurt your feelings, but that's okay. Because I'd rather we hurt our feelings together in a room and then heal together and come up with great solutions together. Mm -hmm. So in the who cares tree, what we do is we start the question and we first start it with, okay, we see this problem. Huh? I see this problem where, and using the rain analogy, someone's in the rain and they're getting wet and they're carrying a lot of things. If I look at that situation, then my first assessment is going to be the most obvious one. We don't want to ever be wet and uncomfortable. So they need to get dry. So the first thing that needs, the first problem that has to be solved is that person has to get dry. And also they just dropped a lot of things. So we got to pick everything up. So you're assessing what you think the problem is. Mm -hmm. The first thing is who cares if that stuff is on the ground? Who cares? Mm -hmm. The person who dropped it okay, well, why is that important to them? Why are those items important to them that they were carrying so many of them? I don't know. Well, who cares? Well, they care because obviously they were willing to risk Mm -hmm. getting drenched to carry it. As you continue to do that, as you keep asking the question, there comes a point where you have to ask the person. Mm -hmm. You just have to. If that's your orientation, you're never going to get it wrong because from the beginning, you're going to be at a minimum starting from what that person perceives their biggest problem to be. Now, the next thing that you're going to do when you're assessing a problem is you have to assess how the person got into that situation in the first place. And you have to make sure in that analysis of how did we get here, that you're looking at it objectively and not through any judgments of choices that were made. Then what I enjoy doing with that person is to say, now, with what you know now, would you do anything different in those choices? Mm -hmm. Because oftentimes, through that person's experience, 
they'll be able to think of something that you would never be able to think of because you don't have their experience. And through their memories, through their experiences, through their culture, through their ways of adapting, they can find a way that will actually be not only a solution for that moment, but it will be a solution that you can then offer to others who may take that same path or try to do that same thing. Now you're gonna start to see fewer and fewer people walking around in the rain with a bunch of things around them Mm -hmm. because they can't carry it alone. So my the question coming to mind for me right now, Alaguma is, is so as an organ, well, as an organization, how am I sitting down and listening and truly asking and diving into those questions and using my most bountiful resource, which are the people that are, that are impacted the most. But then I'm sitting here as a fundraiser. So I may not be in that position in the program position. So as a fundraiser, what's important for me to understand and hear about what you're sharing and apply to what I'm doing? It begins with a step one of assessing where you are and how you're telling the story of your community that you Mm -hmm. serve. Mm -hmm. And that assessment begins with first kind of really asking yourself, am I trading trauma for dollars Mm -hmm. or am I giving voice to a community? Oh, say that again. Wow. Am I trading (laughs) trauma for dollars or am I giving voice to a community? Mm-hmm. So let's unpack that a little bit because I know yeah. that's a hot button for people because they'll say, wait, but if I don't tell the story of what someone went through, how can I tell the story of why we need this investment? Right. So let's make it real, real. <laughs> um, yeah. There's a organization that I worked with that supported communities with breaking cycles of poverty through employment. That's how they talked about the work that they did. Mm-hmm. As we began working together, the first thing that came up was the challenge that they were experiencing between their program team and the fundraising team. And the challenges that they were experiencing were what I see across many, many organizations where the board of the organization, the leadership of the organization and the fundraising team was all white. Mm -hmm. The staff of the organization and the community being served was predominantly black Latina, Latina, and Latinx. As a result, every time there was a gala, every time there was a story, it told the story of how Mary had six kids and she couldn't couldn't get a job. And oh, but once she met us, she was able to get a job. And now her and her kids are finally able to be okay. 
and be happy. Please mm. give us more. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that doesn't sound awful as a story. Right. It, it doesn't make you cringe when you hear it until you hear from Mary. So what does Mary say? Mary says, hey, you know, she tells the program team member when she sees the new website and she sees her story on the website, she calls the team member and she says, hey, Lakeisha, um, I really appreciate you telling my story, but it's been really embarrassing because people have been talking about me at my job because they didn't know that I was homeless. Mm. They didn't know that mm. that was my story. Mm. And I didn't tell people that I was in recovery and I'm not ashamed of it, but it's just, it's my story and I don't like to share it. And so the organization didn't ask for her permission to use that story. Yes, because they asked permission to use her story, but they didn't interrogate how, mm. uh, what, and what parts of her story right. were public consumption. Or, or where to use her story and how. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And that is a perspective of trading trauma for dollars. Yeah. Because that's what that is. You're taking someone's trauma and you're saying, we need to hear it and we need to tell it because that's the only way to change hearts and minds to see this as a real problem. Mm -hmm. This is the only way to connect people to that, the fact that this is a real problem. But that is often, and the reason that we often start with talking about white saviorism in that is because most often when your experience is removed, and you don't have the cultural perspectives and understandings, it can be really challenging to see a situation as a problem that it may not be. So one great example of that is multi-generational homes. In many cultures, multi-generational homes are considered a value and an asset that's not considered a burden. It's not considered a problem. And so for families to live with grandparents, aunts, uncles, all in one home mm -hmm. and for children to grow up in an environment where they don't only see their parent as their only caregiver can be perceived as, oh, that child doesn't have an, an attachment to their parent. Mm -hmm. When in reality, that child has an attachment to a whole community. And if you don't understand that and you only do conversations with the parent in a teacher parent conference, conference, especially if that parent, as we were talking about before, of language divergence, if that parent doesn't speak English as a first language and there's an honor uncle or grandparent who would be better suited to be a part of that conversation, why not include that full community? in the conversation mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and why not ask that child who else do you think should be a part of this conversation you could ask any six-year-old 
who they like, and they're going to tell you (laughs) who in your family tells you who in your family is really smart. They're going to tell you (laughs) and they're never going to be wrong (laughs) because kids are honest and they're clear about where their love, support and wisdom comes from. We hold on to that as adults. We never lose that. What happens is life makes us uncomfortable with our internal compass. And sometimes we need help to kind of hear what we already know. That's what asset-based language, that's what empowerment is about. It's about saying, hey, you have the information. You know exactly what you need to get to where you want to go. I'm here not to solve your problem, but to support you in coming up with a solution that's going to work for you. That's what empowerment is. When we think about our work as our greatest impact is when we empower communities, that's how we win. So to go back to this organization, as we worked together and they started doing listening and conversations across the development team and the program team and started really hearing what was being said, they changed the way they told their stories. Mm -hmm. And instead of talking about the story of how much trauma a person experienced before they came to the program, they focused on the resiliency and the strategies that that person employed in order to successfully leverage all the resources of the organization. So they were telling a story of triumph Mm -hmm. and they were telling the hero story rather than telling the victim story. Because in every story, there's a victim and there's a survivor. And when you're trading trauma for dollars, you're telling the story of the victim. But when you're empowering communities and you're giving voice, you're telling the story of the survivor. And so as a fundraiser, it is our job to fundraise through an equity lens and tell the story of survivors to inspire people to invest in creating more survivors, not to prevent more victims. Wow, that's powerful. Mm -hmm. It makes me think, Alaguma, about a long time ago, I took this assessment. It was was around class, right? Differences in class and if you happen to be living on minimum wage, for example, and all the resourcefulness and things you knew how to do and make happen. And I would not have survived a week, (laughs) you know? (laughs) And it was like, it was so eye-opening for me. Like, wow, Karen, um, folks really work hard and are resourceful and have so much that they're accomplishing. So I, that really helps me think about the story of resourcefulness because it requires so much to, to overcome a lot of obstacles in our lives, right? All of us have different kinds of obstacles and that is a different story. Yes, because one of the, I love the word, the word that you're using there, resourcefulness. Um, early in my career as a fundraiser, that was my favorite word to put on a resume because in my mind, I said, hey, if I can take myself to one of the top universities in the world with a tuition that was probably my mother's salary at the time as a university professor, 
and survive it, get through it without any of the advantages and any of the resources, there's absolutely nothing I cannot do or achieve. And that's how I was able to raise $70 million as a team of me at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights in two years, because I understood that there's literally nothing I can't do if I have the right relationships. And fundraising Mm -hmm. is foundational on relationships. And as a fundraiser, if you're, I love the question that you asked of, well, what if you don't have access to the community you're serving? If Mm -hmm. as a fundraiser, you are representing the voice of a community and you don't have any relationships with anyone in that community, you're doing it wrong. I agree. Mm -hmm. Yes. You're doing it wrong. And that's your step one. Before you get to reading, you know, how to be an anti-racist, before you get to watching 13th on Ava DuVernay's film on Netflix, which I highly recommend to every (laughs) single human. (laughs) That's the one plug I'll probably do today. (laughs) But uh, before you do those things, you have to ask that question, what am I doing? And it's not about saying, oh, but I have a, and I say that now I want to, and this was something that was so on my mind to talk about today because it is an assumption that is made and it's an assumption that I appreciate where it comes from. However, I want to speak on it. And that assumption is that having an identity means that you have also an equal level of high cultural competency. Mm -hmm. And the reason I want to highlight that in a moment is because it is on all of us to interrogate our own unconscious bias all the time. And the only way we can do that is by not assuming that an identity means we have a cultural competency. And what I mean by that really specifically is that as a fundraiser early in my career, I too kind of had the, oh yeah, if I don't show the pictures of these kids who are being served by our services, and at the time I was in Washington, Mm D.C., working with survivors of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. And my first (laughs) grant was destroyed (laughs) that I wrote. Uh, My feelings were very deeply hurt because (laughs) I fashioned myself to be quite the writer at that time and quite the brilliant salesperson. And so I said, how in the world could there be this much, um, this many track changes, if you will. (laughs) And I think we've all been there as fundraisers (laughs) at some point in our careers. And so what the thing that she tore to shreds was the way in which I was talking about the women and children that we serve. Mm -hmm. And the way I talked about them was all the things that had happened to them, all the pain that they'd experienced. And I talked about the cycle of abuse and I talked about how, 
hard it is to leave an abusive marriage or family and all these things. And she sat me down and she looked me in the eye and she said, okay, well, how do you think that little girl would feel if this is what she saw 20 years from now about how you were talking about her? If this is the picture that she saw that you used of her? Mm, Wow. Why would you want that for them? They look like us. And she was a black woman. And the reason that that was so powerful to me is because at that point, I had already dedicated my life to supporting the wellness of black children. And the thought that that could happen, the thought of how that felt, it reminded me of my own personal experience As a six-year-old, I was bused to school in St. Louis. They had a program called the desegregation program because in the 70s, the St. Louis public schools were not fully desegregated. And through various protests and things, this program was established where if you took a test and you were deemed smart enough and quote unquote, in my mind, safe enough, if you will, Mm -hmm. you were allowed, if you will, to attend these schools. The only children in the schools who identified as black were a part of this program. All of the other children were white and predominantly affluent. And in that experience growing up in that school, I was referred to as the DSEG kid. Mm. So I grew up with that kind of in my mind. I'm a DSEG kid. And the only reason I'm here is because I'm smart. And I understood because every day I went home to a community of children and I saw what their lives were like. And I can see now where those those lives have gone to and the drastic contrast between their experiences and trajectories and possibilities and mine Mm -hmm. because of that one program that I was labeled and I felt a way about it for years and years. And I remember talking to someone in recent years and we're adults now. And saying, you know, hey, do you remember when we were the DSEG kids? And she didn't remember that. And she was one of our white classmates. From her perspective, that was not even a thing. She didn't even remember that as a concept or as a program or anything. But it was a pivotal experience in my life. That's what it means when we talk about, you don't know what someone is bringing into a conversation or what traumas are impacting them. Because for some people, they can go through that and come out of it and say, you know what? I was so much stronger for it. I didn't even need help. So I don't think people need help. In fact, Mm -hmm. I don't even really think racism exists. I think you can overcome it with enough money and enough merit. Yeah. That's There's nothing wrong with that perspective because it's your perspective. 
The challenge is when it bleeds into your work. And so if we as individuals do not interrogate our own unconscious bias, whether we work through it or not, whether we've healed it or not, we have to know we've all had traumas, we've all had experiences that have shaped who we are, how we think, and how we work, and how we relate to people. And if we don't put up protections for ourselves, and if we don't do the right interrogations of the systems, the people, and the policies that we're putting in place, and we don't do those things through an equity lens, then we're going to continue to see communities not changing, and we're going to continue to see the same problems again and again. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So I want to go back to your, the story you were telling. So, because, I mean, just to be honest, every, I mean, most of us in the fundraising world have grown up talking about trauma stories, not because we wanted to exploit people, but because it, it worked, right? And we, yeah. <laughs> we got a lot of money from it. Yeah. Um, not understanding the damage we were doing using the trauma stories and that we still use them. I want to know what did the what is what does the resilience story sound like, and mm. what did it do at the? How did it change when you did that at, you know, with that organization that had you know built their gallows around these trauma stories and now changed to the resilience story? What happened? Yes, love it. So to bring it around, the first thing that they did is they stopped talking about the cycle of poverty and they started talking about economic mobility. Mm. And in changing the conversation to economic mobility, it aligned it with the conversation that's happening globally about what does it take to thrive? <laughs> like just yeah. as a human, what do you need? What resources do you need? So now you've instantly kind of shifted the problem you're talking about mm -hmm. because now you're changing the conversation from cycles of poverty, which talks about choices and decisions. And you're talking now about systems because now you're talking about economic mobility. And now you're talking about barriers to mobility because mobility is about movement. Right. Um, so now, cycles is about change. Mobility is about movement, right? Yeah. So if we start focusing on movement and mobility, what stops movement? Barriers. So now we can focus on the barriers to change. Yeah. Okay. Well, what happened when Mary, when Mary first, first came up against a barrier? Well, what was the first barrier? Her first barrier was childcare. Her first barrier to employment and economic mobility was childcare. So what did they do? They were able to provide childcare vouchers so that Mary could place her children in childcare while she was looking for employment. Yeah. Awesome. So the story we're going to tell is about how she went through the interview process hmm. and she was able to do that because of the childcare she was provided. Mm -hmm. 
Now we're not talking about the fact that she has four children. We're talking about the fact that she overcame her barrier and now she's moving forward. Mobility. Yeah. So even if that's all that's happened to Mary, now I'm excited. Yeah. Because now I know, ooh, well, what else can Mary do? Because she just overcame a barrier. Right. I'm excited for her story. I want to be a part of that story. My heart and my mind is now invested. That's how you ship it. And that's what we did. So what, what changed was for the gala, they invited Mary to the conversation and they let her tell that story. And it was amazing. Yeah. People on the team were excited because for the first time, the staff was celebrated at the gala. The gala was not about the donors getting steak and the program (laughs) staff having to volunteer and quote unquote, serve all the wealthy white people who came. Yeah. Which is how it's structured, if we're really honest, about what events are and why event culture perpetuates a lot of feelings of oppression for staff members and organizations. But in this moment, when Mary told her story, she told her story of how Lakeisha helped her to get the vouchers and not only helped her to get the vouchers, but took her around to 20 different child care centers until they found the right one and helped her to ask the right questions so she would feel safe while her kids were at the daycare so that she could focus on moving forward. Yeah. And imagine how Lakeisha felt in that moment being recognized and mm-hmm. celebrated for all the hours and all the driving she was doing and believing that it was possible. Because the reality is, is that for every one Mary, there's four Susan, Janes, and Alicia's who don't make it. Yeah. Who don't follow through, who don't successfully overcome the barrier, but that doesn't mean that you stop trying. That doesn't mean that you stop doing the work. And that doesn't mean the work is not valuable. When you're able to tell that story of barriers, then you can tell the story of, oh, wow, what kept Susan and Alicia and Jane from really being able to move forward when we gave her the vouchers? Right, right. Oh, wow. We realized that for Jane, she was carrying a lot of shame and guilt about being a single mom. And she didn't want people to really know that. Yeah. And so she didn't really want to put her daughter in daycare. She wanted to keep her baby home with her because she was scared and nervous about if her daughter would be safe. Well, huh, we might have to think of something else then. Mm -hmm. How would that work? What should we do then? Ooh, let's have some conversations with maybe some other organizations. Maybe we should get her some mental health services. Hey, donor, we've discovered that we've been having trouble with having the kind of impact we want to have. 
And here's one of the things that we think might help some of our members of our community. And we know that you have some resources you might be able to help us use to test some of our theories so that we can continue to innovate our programs to have more and more impact. That's a case for support that does not say people in the program have failed, but says we may not have gotten all the way to the cure or to the cause mm -hmm. of the problem rather, so that we can have an effective cure. Yeah, that's a totally different conversation mm -hmm. than we typically have. That really helps break it down. And, and just to, to close it out, what happened with their event and all the, the raising of money, Alaguma? Yes. So mm -hmm. raised more than they had ever raised. But most, 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 most importantly, when I had the opportunity to be a part of an organization-wide conversation around race and equity, the way that the comment section exploded with compliments, accolades, and affirmations about how much better the event mm -hmm. felt and mm -hmm. was mm -hmm. for the program team, the participants, the board members, the staff, that was the true win because they shifted their culture, not in a matter of years, not even in a matter of months, but literally in a matter of weeks. Wow. Mm -hmm. I just think about how much more authentic and like I'm in this together with my fellow humans than our typical approach. That must've felt so different for them and so positive. Yes. And that's what having an anti-racist culture of philanthropy is. It's creating a space where it's truly equitable, where it's truly that Mm -hmm. everyone in that space is empowered to tell their story and to call people in to creating solutions to the problems that we're facing as a society. Cool. That's, I have some notes here to summarize everything, Jeff. Do you want me to do that or you want to do yeah, that? Yeah. Why don't you just summarize and then, wow, it's been powerful. Yeah. So this, these are some things I wrote down to help me, Alec. Aliguma. And um, so first of all, as a fundraiser, do I have a relationship with whoever we're, we're working with? As, if, my organs, if I don't have a relationship of any kind, how do I go about developing that? And then, and then investigating and unpacking, you know, what do I understand about the systems and structures, the, the barriers? What do I understand about the history right. of the population? I, you know, really spend some time learning and then unpacking my own biases so those don't get in my way. And then, you know, Veritas, we talk about building a relationship with program and working together to help understand what each other do and build and gathering those stories. So in those, there's opportunities for me in those story, in that opportunity of developing friendships and, and a team effort to have these conversations, right, about gathering stories of resilience and really understanding and listening. And are we doing that as an organization? And then when I am telling the stories, be asking myself, you know, how am I portraying who I'm sharing about? And do I have permission? 
I mean, the one woman in your earlier story, maybe she would have been fine with him sharing her story with donors. She just didn't want it on the website. So, you know, have I asked all the questions about how and where and if and and how I'm telling the story? Is this really um, honoring to you? So those are some things I put down, Jeff. I don't know what else you have in your takeaway. Well, I mean, what I really loved was the whole thing of, of talking about what are the barriers the whole idea of moving forward rather than mm. talking about the, you know the trauma around it but rather about what do we need to do to move forward and what are the barriers that keep us from moving forward and inviting everyone the organization the people being served and the donors to solve that problem that to me is that's that's a whole way of a different way to look at this in a, in a in a way that's honoring of everyone. Um, and I think that that was the that was the big aha for me, Alaguma. And um, it's been an incredible conversation with you and listening to your story here. Um, and this has been so valuable. And I just really thank you for sharing your wisdom with us today. And I hope it's been insightful and valuable for all of you as well. And before we have to leave today, I just want to make sure that Alaguma, you can share with us um, how they people can get in touch with you and learn oh, yeah. more about what you're doing, because this is life-changing work here. Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. So I am Ali Guma, the super fundraiser. So you can find me at www.thesuperfundraiser.com as well as on Instagram, Ali Guma Speaks. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us today. And thanks for all of you who are listening. We really appreciate your partnership and your openness to learning. And We'll see you next time. Thank you for joining us for the Nothing But Major Gifts podcast from Veritas Group. Richard and Jeff also write an ongoing blog that you can subscribe to for free at veritasgroup.com. Please join us again next time.